1: Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. My debut novel, Insatiable, is coming in February and there's a limited signed edition available to pre-order from Waterstones for your book listeners or you can order it from your local independent bookshop if you ask them nicely. Our guest this week is a writer who has served time at Her Majesty's pleasure and been awarded as a member of the British Empire. His fans include Lem State and Steve McQueen. His brilliant 14th book, Cane Warriors, has just been published, and the story of his life is heading to our screens soon. I am honoured to share our interview with the prolific author powerhouse that is Alex Wheatle. We talked about how he discovered books during his time in prison, the talented new voices that he's excited to champion, and why he's writing about a period of history that so many of us don't know enough about. Just to warn you, sound-wise, we had a few technical issues, so the sound isn't always as clear as we'd like it to be. We had to use a backup recording. We hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment. I wanted to start by asking you about an interview I read um, in The Guardian when you talked about um, how one of the first books that made a really big impression on you was um, The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James. yes. Um, and I'd love yes. to hear a bit more about what it was like to find that book. There it oh is. wow, you've got it right there! Amazing. That's a great cover. Is that the what? Is that the edition that you read then? No, it's
2: not the um, it's not the uh, uh, copy that I had. And I first read the Black Jacobins when I was serving time at Her Majesty's Pleasure way back in 1981. This is following the um, the Brixton riots, and um, obviously I was a very angry young man. And my cellmate, he was an avid reader, and he was aware that I wasn't really formed with my culture or my history. He uh, led me to the library the second day after I was interned, and he um, he plucked out this gem for me, the Black Jacobin, CLR James. It blew my mind, because uh, attending school, I wasn't aware of uh, any slave revolts in the Caribbean. This is a story of the first successful slave revolt in Caribbean history, led by the, uh, the charismatic Toussaint Louverture. And I said to myself, wow, if I was um, that at school, I might have well paid attention, rather than nodding off during lectures about Henry VIII and the uh, Spanish Armada and so on. And so that opened up his politically. And made me feel proud of where I came from and my ancestors for the first time. And it really um, centred me and it made me hungry to seek out more books about my history and my Caribbean um, background.
1: Oh, wow. So what came next after you immersed yourself in that book? Where did it lead you? The
2: autobiography of uh, Malcolm X. Much of the text. is written by the great Alex Haley, who wrote Roots. And... Um, to that point, this is 1981, I, felt, I thought that Malcolm X was just a black Muslim in America who had big rallies, was an angry black man, and he stood up for black man's rights. But I didn't know his journey. I didn't know that he served time in prison and he, he could hardly read and so on. And so that really um, inspired me. That he started off the way that I started off. I think he was pimping and he was um, doing petty crime and all sorts of things until he was jailed. But in prison, he educated himself. Started with a dictionary. Started with Aardvark, and so he just wanted to understand all the words. That really impressed me. And um, again, it gave me a sense of pride. It gave me a sense of. Um, There are black men out there who are standing up for our rights and who are not afraid to um, take on the establishment. Following that, I read um, authors like Langston, who's um, mainly writers of the Harlem Renaissance, I read Chester Hines, and then later on, I was introduced to um, James, the great James. I read those texts while serving my time in prison. So um, it was good for me because I wasn't getting involved in any uh, disputes or fighting or arguments. I just spent a lot of time on my bed um, just going through these texts. And so I came out a much more educated man than I had entered. So I use it as a positive experience rather than a negative one.
1: I mean, it sounds as though as well, reading is an activity and an act that had been waiting for you to to welcome you, that as soon as you you found something to connect with, you know, you really wanted to immerse yourself into that world. Well, there's, there's many worlds. In fact, I did
2: this reading when I was six, seven, eight years old. I started off with um, comics and magazines that were lying around the floor of my dormitory in the children's home, and so uh, late at night, with a um, with a light, I would um, with a flashlight, I would be reading the Wizarding and Chips, the Dandy, and so on. So I was always interested in reading and stories, you know, uh, centred around young mischiefs getting up to no good and so on. Then uh, around about 9, 10, 11, uh, somebody gave me a copy of Huckleberry Finn. And uh, I remember I read that and I was so um, I was so rooting for them to uh, escape down the river with Jim the slave and so on. In fact, I wanted Jim to return to the wherever he came from the plantation and rescue more slaves so they could carry on up the Mississippi. It was an escape for me um, because... You know i was living in a very harsh environment sometimes uh, brutalized sometimes uh, uh, physically abused again reading it was a, it's a wonderful thing sometimes it can give you a space to escape you can take your mind elsewhere and you can uh, just plant yourself in the middle of a narrative and feel safe there you know so it really um done my uh, done my soul a great deal of good it really did I cannot recommend reading at a young age enough
1: I think it's so interesting as well that as a boy and then a young man in South London that these the story stories and narratives that really spoke to you so many of those voices were American and that you know now you're someone who has really contributed to and written so much you know, sort of the young people in Britain. And I wonder if, did you ever feel as though you were more represented by American voices and American writers, although there wasn't, the the British ones weren't available or celebrated here at that point in sort of the early 80s and earlier?
2: I was always going down to the library, especially when I was released, for uh, narratives or texts that I could relate to, that could relate to my experience. And I really couldn't find anything In fact, I remember in the children's home, um, they used to show Oliver Twist at Christmas. On occasions, we are banned from doing it because they felt it might make us want to run away. But it wasn't until I um, heard the poet Linton Kwesi Johnson, it was only until I discovered him that I found a narrative and a text that was about here, and that really excited me. But more often than not, I would look to America and I would look to Jamaica to find those narratives. Uh, the Express, they were publishing black books from the early 1990s, and they uh, p- uh, published books called uh, Baby Mother, uh, OPP, and uh, Carney Smith. And she had a book, I think it was published in 1996, called Moss Side Massive. And wow, that blew me away too. That's the first time I've seen in print denies characters, denies these people's um these people's lives and their life experiences. And that really kind of allowed me to um further onto my writing career. It made me believe actually I could actually write my own text, my own narrative, and it would be, uh, it it could find a home.
1: I think that's so, it's such a huge part of, you know, being creative, isn't it? That feeling, I think, of being home when you pick up something and it's words on a page, but you hear a voice. I think that's huge.
2: Absolutely. And reading Moss Side Massive, that gave me a home that I felt, at last, uh, the characters that I knew and recognised, they belong somewhere, because I always believed that um, it doesn't matter who you are, everyone, every character has a right to appear in fiction. And Mothside Massive did that to me because, as you mentioned earlier, most of my read uh, up to that point had been American or Jamaican. And then, um, in the late 90s, there was a a flourish of um, Black narratives. Published by the Express and um, the bigger publishers were taking notice, and so they started to publish uh, writers like Courtney Newland, Stephen Thompson, Peter Kalu, and so that really opened up the gates. And Courtney Newland's a scholar was a significant moment too because it was similar to *Massive*, but set in West London, and so that really made me uh, sit down and pay attention to my work because I felt that. if a novel from West London could be uh, lauded and applauded, then why not from South London? And so I got to work bricks and rock.
1: I love how the settings of your book, that that is so, you know, you can feel London and all its textures and you can really feel every pavement and hear it and smell it. And now I'm reading Cane Warriors and it's magnificent it's it's really it's so tough and visceral and beautiful but also hard to read and I'm guessing it is supposed to be very hard to read it's about a young men these people who've been through things I can only try to imagine and you know how they are how they are surviving but the the vividness of that that you know it, it's it's not the urban world of Brixton, but it's, it sings just as dramatically. I was wondering about the the reading you did to find out about that period in history and that time. Um, were there any other books that informed that process?
2: In a way, I've come full circle. I've always wanted to write a town like that because... I've been visiting Jamaica since 1987, and it was my father who took me to the Firefly State. Me being an avid um, theater fan or book fan, um, I wanted to visit Noah Coward's um, old property. And um, I wasn't aware at that point that um, this was the um, the land adjacent to where Tacky led his revolt and took the guns. It was a fault 200 or so years ago. And indeed, even before that, it was, um, it was the estate of Sir Henry Captain Morgan. So that fascinated me. And so over the years, I researched Jamaican history, slave revolts, and there were quite, quite a few led by heroes like Sam Sharp, Paul Bogle, and Tacky. And I recognized that Tacky wasn't a narrative that was well known or well written about. And I thought, my gosh, you know, that deserves a story. People deserve to know who this incredible man was. And so, um, yes, I, I started to um, write the tale uh, a couple of years ago now. And I just wanted to bring his story to the world because um, every, every nation, they have their heroes, just like the UK. They revere uh, Admiral Lord Nelson, the Duke of Wellington and so forth. Every other country, they revere their heroes. That is lacking when it comes to um, Caribbean heroes in the ex-colonies. And we need to um, remind people that we had our heroes, too. And so basically, I wrote *Cane warriors just to educate, not just black people, but everybody, that there, there is heroes all over the world that we should um, remember and think about and be inspired by. And so that led me to the road of Taki, but I felt it might be even more powerful if I, write the, um, if I write the narrative from the perspective of a 14-year-old boy, I thought, Back then, in the days of slavery, if you was twelve, thirteen, you were suspected to uh, complete a man's work, and if you didn't, you were whip for it. So that really disturbed me. So I thought. I created moral from that point, basically. And I just wanted to introduce him to the world and say, hey, this is what happened. These are the bare details. I mean, obviously, a lot of it is fiction, but I built it around the skeleton of something very real, something that occurred, something that uh, should mean a lot to any freedom-thinking person.
1: It's something I'm ashamed of how little I know about that that period and those events. And I'm hugely, hugely grateful for um, you writing a novel that that makes it so vivid and makes me know more and makes me want to to read more and um, and research more. And I keep thinking as well about how I guess in Britain and the UK, I was thinking maybe in like sort of the thirties and the forties, I suppose, and the fifties, there are lots of very white narratives and uh, boys boarding school stories, I guess, all really glorifying yeah. war and you know, what a thing it is to go out and go in a plane or, or whatever. And your story I felt being about that impulse in young boys and young men about that moment when you're growing up and you feel an ability and responsibility and this need to be not necessarily even be a hero but you know that you've got to to take charge and and do something but what yeah. these these boys and men are being asked to do is so much braver I think and so much harder.
2: Absolutely Um I remember reading uh, Robinson Crusoe and I had to um write something about that for performance on Radio 4. And I haven't read Robinson Crusoe for many, many decades. And when I reread it, I was absolutely appalled at the treatment of Man Friday. I mean, he was suspected to treat Robinson Crusoe as some kind of god and kiss his feet and forever be his um, servant. You know, that was the text. And I thought, wow. And so, and even the Pirates of the Caribbean films, where uh, black people are kind of, uh, they kind of looked on as if they're inferior. And so I really wanted to level that, where um, black people like Moa and Keverton and the Cane Warriors were actually trying to empower themselves, because that is so rare to see in fiction of that period, in the um, 17th, 18th, even 19th century. I mean, it's only after reading um, Shaka Zulu, again, that I, um, I read a text where black people were trying to take hold of their own destiny, if you like. And so um, I've always looked for uh, narratives like that to inspire me. So Cain um, Warriors is very important to me. I mean, where the plantations were located is very close to where my mother was raised. And so that's why, uh, who knows, uh, one of those ancestors, Kane Warriors, could well be mine, who, you know, who knows? That makes me tingle with kind of excitement and pride, as it should do. Over the years we've watched um, films like Brave Heart and so forth. And obviously that film inspires Scott. So I guess retain worries. I just want to inspire anybody who's Jamaican, Caribbean, African or any, anywhere else.
1: Is it right that you were writing, I guess, I mean, I think, you know, all books are for everyone, but sort of primarily for a, a straightforward adult audience and, you know, sort of made the move to to young adult fiction. I mean, is that part of that, that that's such a, those are the people, those you know, younger readers are so ready to be inspired and so ready to connect with reading and with the stories that you're telling in such a direct way and in a life-altering way.
2: To be honest, um, writing adult fiction, I felt there was a ceiling above me. I mean, for example, in 12, 13, 14 years, I was hardly invited to any major literary festivals uh, like Cheltenham or Edinburgh or um, anywhere else. And so it was kind of frustrating for me. I was receiving incredible reviews, but I, was, I felt with my publishers at the time that they only expected me to hit a certain level rather than really um, promote me as I felt I deserved. And so there was a frustration there. And I felt that maybe if I tried children's fiction or YA fiction, and then that ceiling might be raised. And it definitely has. I mean, after writing Little Bit, I found doors started to open for me. Within a year of publishing Little Bit, I was invited to all the major literary festivals. And I kind of said to myself, why didn't this happen um, 15, 20 years ago? So there was a frustration there. But I think for young people, you can definitely, as a writer, you can um, try to um, set moral boundaries. You could try to write a story that asks them to challenge themselves to um, to uh, think about subjects like race and um, what happened to um, characters like Moro and Keraton and so on. You could actually uh, be involved in their moral compass where many adults, they've already had that set in stone. So it's almost impossible to penetrate their mindset at that point but with children and young adults you can do that as an author and that's what excites me.
1: Do you find you get a different response from those readers? Are they more direct and do they have more questions for you?
2: Absolutely I mean I've won awards but nothing thrills me um, as much as a librarian in the school saying that um, little Johnny, he was a reluctant reader, wouldn't pick up anything. He picked up Crompton Lights or Little Bit or any other of my YA books and he's in a corner at dinner break and he's reading and he's engaged and he's he's enjoying that experience. That, give, that gives me almighty thrill, um, not only for my own self-satisfaction but also because I know that the power of what reading can do. It really changed my life. It really did. So, um, hopefully, hopefully, you know, there's a little kid out there right now with a um, book of mine, and that is affecting their life opportunities because if you read well, that means you can study well and that means you can go on to university and so forth. So it's, it's really a, a big deal for me to try and get as many young people reading as we can. And sometimes I feel that young adult writers and children's writers, they do not get the recognition they deserve because we do impact on education. We really do. And comprehension. Being in lockdown, I've been watching um, daytime TV and it's very, very rare to actually see a children's writer appear in any of those programs. And yet in lockdown, children were at home 24 seven. And so we really need to address that. I feel because we play a major part in children's education.
1: And you're, the readers, readers now who will then you know keep being readers and keep reading more. I saw this on Twitter, so I do, I cannot vouch for its veracity, but I did see today someone saying or claiming that over lockdown, more books were sold than ever, and one in three was a children's book. That is
2: fantastic to hear. It really is. So I guess um, home study, uh, homeschooling. So. Maybe maybe uh, many parents are deciding that, um, okay, you're done with maths today, here's a book. I mean, I'll be excited to think that is the case. So um, yes, um, that that warms my heart. That really does. So hopefully that will continue, even if the um, children do return to school and teachers uh, see the benefit of uh, children reading. And there's a number of schools I've attended in the last two or three years that have um, these little sessions called drop everything and read and so uh, I don't know a bell might go off or something and uh, children are required or obliged to pick up a book out of their satchel or it may be and read for 10-15 minutes and I think that's so healthy really healthy it's nice to um, hear about and see.
1: And I think that's something that People listening might want to, do you know, I mean, to be honest, people listening to this podcast probably don't need so much <laughs> encouragement to read. I think they're fine. But I've really found over down that trying to make time for reading because it's so, because it feels indulgent almost. I think it's something yeah. that I think, oh, but, you know, there are all these other things I should do first. And actually... It's the, the nourishment I need the most.
2: Yeah, to, to be honest, uh, during lockdown, I was in a muddle. I was quite depressed, actually. I mean, when you watch the, uh, the news cycle and what's happening with COVID and everything else, it's quite depressing. So I had to switch myself away from that, and I couldn't really, um, I couldn't really engage with reading at that point or any kind of creative pursuit. It's only. Um, Maybe July, end of July, August, that I could re-engage again with uh, creating something on the page. But only um, only in small steps, if you like, not as I usually would, because I'm still feeling the effects of how the world is so changed. I mean, I was supposed to see um, my family in the, the US. My mother's out there. She's quite old. see my siblings as well. So that never happened. Um, the play Crompton Nights that was postponed and my siblings and my nephews were going to come over and see that obviously they couldn't come. So that was also kind of um, depressing for me. And, you know, when I, when I see actors out of work, not knowing where the next paycheck is going to come from, you know, all these things are depressing. And so it's hard for a writer who feels, who feels that pain to actually sit at your desk and, try to create so you know i'm getting slowly back into it hopefully so um we'll see how i go
1: i hope so i'll be thinking of you in the coming weeks and months and hoping the, the <laughs> thank you stands. um have you been reading again was there a, a book that you were able to to pick up and connect with
2: yes um this is uh, burn bright by the incredible daniel juando it's their debut um her debut novel she teaches at the same university as me, at Manchester Metropolitan University, who unfortunately, I uh, hear over the weekend, uh, most of the, uh, the students are under a lockdown. But she's going to be a big star. I mean, this is an incredible debut. So I really recommend it for any YA readers out there, or any, any readers at all out there. It's a, you know, Melvin uh, Berger says it's an utter page turner from a storming new talent is passionate, committed, and shines a ray of light into the darkest places. The YA novel of 2020, and I don't want to argue with the great Melvin Burgess. So I've read this, and uh, that kind of got me back into reading with a bang again. You know, so I'm um, very excited by that. Uh, it's about a 15-year-old Nathan who discovers that his older brother by taking his own life. So Nathan goes on a journey to discover why this happened. And the uh, it's very visual. It's very engaging. You cannot take your eyes off the page. And you just follow Nathan's journey and the journey of these two brothers who uh, grew up in Widdenshire in Greater Manchester. And it's one of the best urban novels I've ever read. It really is. It, it kind of reminds me of Side Massive, which is... Um, which is no no mean feat. So, yes, uh, "Burn Bright by Danielle Juando. Remember that name because she's going to be a big star.
1: Oh, have you talked to Danielle about Mossad Massive?
2: I, I need to. I really need to speak to her about that to, to discover whether she's read that or not because I consider, well, many, many uh, writers of my generation, we consider Mossad Massive, Massive uh, a classic.
1: I think it's so thrilling as well, you know, when you write that there are so many writers, we're all connected to each other through what we're reading, because yeah. I think so many writers are readers. And all those ideas and how our brains interpret them and hang on to them.
2: Absolutely. I tell my students that you cannot become um, a writer if, you, if you're not a reader first. Little did I know that the six year old me reading magazines would lead to me being an author, but I think it's necessary to go through that journey. where We understand narrative and we learn to understand what entertains us and what moves us and where a story starts and where's the middle and where's the end. Because even in a comic strip, you can do that. So um, that set me off on my journey.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: We'll be back to Alex soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen An American Marriage by Tayari Jones. The story told partly in letter form of Celestial and Roy, young black newlyweds whose marriage is compromised from the start when Roy is wrongly imprisoned for rape. It's an utterly propulsive, compelling story. Jane's writing is beautiful, sharp and reflective. She locates the shadows in a morality tale. I think it's impossible to read this novel and not go on to react against systemic racism. As a white woman reading, this forced me to ask questions about how I'm part of the problem and how I can change that. Ultimately, this is a story about humans trying to survive in a system that does not recognise or honour their humanity. If you've already read American Marriage, and I'm sure lots of you have, I strongly recommend checking out Dialogue Books' Black History Month reading list on Instagram, which features a range of great writers, including former podcast guest Britt Bennett. Now, back to Alex. I was just thinking about what you were saying with the Beano and the Dandy and the thrilling economy of it. I love comics and i loved those comics in particular because it shows you how you tell the essence of the story in not that much space you know nothing is wasted
2: absolutely and i tried to um feature that that kind of style in um kane warriors Um, I'm not quite sure the wordage, but it's not as long as my previous novels, I don't think. But I wanted to be concise. I wanted to be uh, efficient. I wanted to uh, get straight to the action. I wanted to move the story along whenever I could, to engage the reader emotionally. And that's the most important thing. So where I could, I shortened the sentences. And so I, I tried to make the reader gallop through the pages and I try to um, lift the tension, especially before there's a battle or anything else or any jeopardy there is. I mean, it's an important lesson for um, writers to learn. And and it's took me a number of years to kind of build up that tension slowly. And then you have the action. You know, you've got to have that tension first. You slow it down with with, um, short sentences. That's what I do to get that reader's attention, to engage that reader's heart, if you like. And when you are thrilled, when you are um, reading a passage that is full of uh, attention, your heartbeat does gather pace. Scientists have proved that. And so me as a writer, I manipulate that. And so when you're reading Cain Warriors, I'm manipulating you all the time. And that's why probably when you finish, you kind of sit down and oh, that's, that's the kind of reaction I want because I want you emotionally, not just mentally, but emotionally engaged.
1: It's re- It really is making me feel the way I felt watching a really big movie when I was about seven or eight. And that, you know, as you say, it's that constant kind of bringing up and bringing down and not being yeah. just immersed in that world. Um, other than any of the books that you've mentioned so far, and I know there have been a few, um, what have you read that made you feel that way?
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan of Raymond Chandler. I wasn't even aware that he was born in the UK. In fact, he attended um, Dulwich School, you know, the one where Nigel Farage uh, attended, you know, that uh, free paying school. And they've got a library there dedicated to him. And I'm a massive fan of his style and also uh, his class as well. But his style, that efficient, Uh, concise, precise style. I'm a big fan of that. And I think sometimes uh, literary writers, uh, yes, they can write flowery sentences and incredible prose, but do they get the heart racing? Do they get the heart racing? So sometimes I think crime writers, they're not valued enough, I don't think, because they've learned the art of creating tension, where sometimes literary writers fail to do that, for me anyway. And so, but Raymond Chandler, he's one of the best. He's one of the best of um, applying that talent to the page where he can increase tension, and also his use of language. And this is why in Quantum Nights, similar style to Chandler, I believe, because I'm bending words. I am manipulating words and phrases, just like Raymond Chandler does in his crime fiction. And so that to me is why his books are timeless. And I'm trying to achieve the same thing with my Crompton series. I'm trying to make it timeless. So maybe in 50 years' time, they cannot place it in a particular era because the language is so fresh and innovative. So that's what I'm trying to achieve there. Some people say, oh, but they don't speak like that in South London or children don't speak like that. But I'm not trying to create anything that's contemporary. I'm trying to create something that's new. I mean, Crompton, as far as I'm concerned, is a fictional place so i'm allowed i've got a blank canvas and so i can create how i want to create and so the terms and language that i employ is um fresh and new to me and hopefully new for the reader
1: i love it when you find those writers when you think i didn't even know you were allowed to do that but now this person has done that there is no stopping me
2: he's a guy and he was also incredible um a script writer also you know, he's written two or three film scripts and I studied those film scripts and he's an incredible, efficient, concise script writer. And I think for crime and YA and children, I think those writers, uh, their skill sets are more usable, if you like, or applicable writing films and drama or, or for the stage. I really do. I think sometimes literary writers, they struggle for that transition where YA writers and crime writers and children's writers, they might find that transition a bit easier because their style lends to that.
1: I know what you mean. I think some some writing feels so, you know, sort of lush and overblown and there's so much of it. And you sort of think this is much more fun for the writer than the reader. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's, that's, uh, that's how I feel about a lot of mystery fiction. And uh, sometimes I wonder, um, how how did that get to the top? You know, I I read a text that's recommended to me and I'm thinking, oh, God, you know, on page 80, there's another 400 to go. You know, give give me a crime book or a YA book where I can just rattle through and be excited and have that heart pumping again. You know, just like the six year old boy reading the Beano, whether Billy Wiz will win his race or Billy's boots will score the winning goal. You know, so I'm looking for that heart pumping narrative. The
1: genius of the Beano is that Billy Wiz does always win his race, yet you still get, it still gets your heart pumping. Absolutely. Can you remember any books that you've read that surprised you? And maybe you had that sort of, oh no, here we go. And then you were really gripped by them.
2: Here's my guilty uh, secret or confession. Um, I remember reading, um, I think it was my wife, Uh, she loved the Thornburgs, you know, the, um, the drama series with Richard Chamberlain and I thought, you know, everyone's going crazy for this TV series, let me get the book. And uh, I thought, oh, you know, this is probably no more than some kind of chiclet kind of thing. You know, and I was very kind of dismissive about that kind of work. But I shouldn't have been because I loved it. I loved the tensions. I loved the situation. I loved the storytelling. So, yeah, I mean, you could read any story if it's written well. And this is a million miles away from my life experiences. It was set in the outback. Australia on a dusty kind of outpost called Drogheda, I think it was. I'm hoping, I'm hoping some of your older readers might remember the, uh, the series or the book, but I loved it. I loved it. That's my guilty confession for you today.
1: Do you know, I've never read it and I've always wondered about it because I think my parents had a copy. I can remember the... Um, the cover really vividly, and it was definitely a you know now a major TV show. It had that very sort of like eighties, you know, slightly bleached out photograph. I'm going to track a copy yeah. down now.
2: Yeah, it's a good read.
1: I know that you know you're very involved in in the world of music, and do you still DJ? Oh uh, no, I can't
2: keep up. <laughs> I can't. I wouldn't. I can't keep up with uh, these uh, young talents. I really can't. But um, yes, when I was sixteen, seventeen, I wanted to be the new Bob Marley. You know that's why i began writing in the first place i wanted to write songs and lyrics and you know but um i could write i could write forever but i can never um find a melody I, I always melody challenge if you like so um in fact when i was um eight nine years old i wanted to i wanted to uh, publish my own magazine so <laughs> sometimes when i'm at a school setting or assembly i might reel off some of my old lyrics for a year eight or nine group, and they might enjoy it or whatever. And then they say, oh, but you're not as good as Stormzy. I thought, well, thank you. <laughs> it's always been part of me, and its I've always tried to introduce it, especially in my Cronkton books, where I've got a character who might be a DJ or a rapper or a grime artist. So I enjoy those moments.
1: I was going to say, yeah, but, you know, obviously Stormzy's not out there, you know, writing all these amazing books. Well, I mean, hang on, he is now, isn't he? <laughs>
2: Yes, he's a publisher now. He's a publisher, isn't he? We need more like him, don't we? We really need more like him to invest in books and uh, trying to get more uh, people of colour writing and publishing. I think that's great.
1: And as you say, it's knowing as well that he's doing that now and the generation of kids who are responding and what they're going to be doing in five or ten years. I was thinking, if you were eight or nine now, and that oh, I, I thought about making a magazine, you sort of said that as though that was a mad idea i'm like not at all kids kids can do it now because thanks to technology it's it's that bit more possible the magazine that you were going to have when you were eight what was that going to be about
2: i was a big football and cricket fan so probably football and cricket you know i was a big fan of billy's boots um i think that was in shoot magazine. so i wanted something called maybe alex's boots or alex's spikes or something like that Yeah, football and cricket combined, where my characters, they play in the football team and they play in the cricket team also. Uh, I was thinking of maybe designing um, a boot that could be used for cricket and football.
1: I love it. I really love it. And so were you going to do the illustrations as well? Was it going to be a, a comic strip?
2: I would. have I give it a shot. Maybe I would have asked somebody else to do that, but I would have gave it a shot. Definitely. Maybe I can still do it.
1: I think. You, I think there's always, always time. I think you know we can be we can be prodigies at any age.
2: Something to think about. My, my son's a graphic designer also, and so I need to. Um, I need to talk with him, and see and see if he might be available for this um, enterprise. Who knows? He might say yes.
1: Um, I did want to ask you about um books about music whether that's like you know biographies or novels where there's lots of music in the story do you have any music focused books that you especially love
2: oh i'm so glad you asked here is a here is exodus it's, the, it's basically the story of how bob marley's exodus album came about about how he was um almost assassinated in jamaica in 1976 how he had to um, basically come to England to escape all that political turbulence in Jamaica in the mid-1970s and how he was feeling very low. But while here in um, living in the UK, he wrote and recorded... The incredible exodus album and so it takes you through um, the songs and who was there at the recordings and so forth it's a fascinating insight into the into the mindset of a genius and someone who was hurting as well because obviously you know when i think he knew as well who um who tried to assassinate him i think uh marlon james he wrote a book uh, award-winning book about the circumstances. Yes, the brief history of seven killings. And so that kind of uh, explores the circumstances of the assassination attempt on Bob Marley. And Exodus basically, is the aftermath of that, the album that came out after that. And for me, as a Bob Marley geek and fan, a massive inspiration for me, I wanted to understand his uh, his, uh, thought processes as he wrote this album that I still dance to Today, I mean, I've read the uh, autobiography of Bob Marley too, written by Timothy White, which is probably one of the best autobiographies of a musician in history. Well, I guess I'm biased, but that's my, that's my opinion. But um, if uh, any, uh, any listener out there wants to um, understand uh, the thought process of Bob Marley coming to the UK and sitting down and writing the Exodus album, then this book is for you.
1: It's the most amazing gold book. Um, this is um, obviously over audio, you can't tell, but it's, um, it's a really beautiful edition.
2: Well, it says on the back, uh, the best music album of the 20th century, Time Magazine, 1999. So I'm not going to argue with that.
1: <laughs> How do you think um, Bob Marley has influenced your writing, either in his lyrics or his rhythms or his philosophy?
2: oh massively massive i cannot tell you how much oh man i could i could be here i could be here all day i mean if, if you can imagine a 13 14 year old boy who's never been exposed to that kind of music before and to listen to lyrics like get up stand up stand up for your rights it's, it really blows your mind. It, it really does. And so it just changed me politically. It changed me to think differently about myself and my place in society. Because you remember, I'm coming from an institution where I've been kind of raised to feel bad about myself and not confident about myself, To um, for them to uh, always insist in me that I am the lowest in society. I, m- I remember once that um, when I was six seven eight years old i wondered uh, where my parents were and basically i was told that um, they left me on the dock of a bay and went back to the jungle that is that was my perception of uh, black people basically that's what i believed and so you can imagine what it was like when i was first exposed to black culture like bob marley and so forth it blew my mind and so um that was the first stage of uh, the changing of my esteem if you like or the building of my esteem. I guess the second stage is when I found myself in prison serving time, and somebody giving me the black jacobins by C.L.R. James. and then been crazy Johnson, and then it'll just, uh, it had this accumulative effect on me, where at last I began to feel proud in my own skin. I feel like I belong for the first time in my life where I wasn't an outsider. I actually belong to something and I should be proud of who I am and the people who came before me, my parents, grandparents, and my ancestors. And so reggae music and Brixton, they taught me all those things and it gave me the confidence in the end to um, actually even attempt to be a writer. Why not? Because um, Bob Marley could be a singer and so forth. So why couldn't I express Whatever talent I had, it really gave me that belief because sometimes you find, even now, when I go into schools, especially working-class schools where um, young people, they do not have the confidence to try to uh, be a painter, to try to be a sculptor. Oh, I can't do that. I can't do this. You know. But we have to encourage them to try things. And that's why I'm not a big fan of... Um, saturday evening shows like britain's got talent and so on where there's so much rejection of people there you know they get voted off and so i I think we should always try to encourage our young to try things and find out and discover where their talents are
1: i think it's really interesting that you mentioned those shows because it's so flattening isn't it and i think that lots of young people do believe that is their only chance but also the this idea that culture has these gatekeepers and they're, you know, the four judges and design addresses who yeah. control everything. And, and, you know, my heart is breaking for young boy Alex not having that esteem and confidence that he deserves so much, but also imagining how it's like I'm imagining, you know, sunlight coming into a cathedral and like the roof coming off when you discover these amazing creators who are showing you the heritage and the potential you can be so proud of.
2: Absolutely. Yes, I, I wish I had that. But um, I had to scrape and fight to uh, finally get, or finally to accept myself. And that's a, that's a big thing, to accept yourself. I used to be ashamed of where I came from. I didn't like to um, tell uh, close friends of mine in Britson that I came from a children's home. I, I didn't want to be associated with that kind of uh, childhood. I, I just, I tried to block it out. And so it's only through uh, uh, engaging with cult- the culture around me that I could finally accept myself. And once you accept yourself, you start to think of um, things that you can contribute and things that you could uh, accomplish. And that's, that's a very important transition.
1: I hope this is OK to ask. I was wondering whether you were able to stay in touch with the the cellmate who was a reader who got you into those books.
2: I, I did for many years, but sadly he passed away in the, uh, four or five years ago, I believe in Jamaica, he, he went back to Jamaica, but I can, um, tell you this, one of Steve McQueen's episodes on the Small series will be about my young life. And so your listeners can look forward to that. It's called Alex Wheatle. I think it's episode four or five, but it will depict my early life when I was a kid in a children's home and when I um, arrived in Brixton uh, in the late seventies. And um, that time I met my uh, Rastafarian cellmate in a a prison cell in 1981. And so the listeners can look forward to that. And so at least Simeon's passed away, but he will be forever on TV or on a a TV screen somewhere. I feel very proud to be part of this. I mean, I was part of the original writing team for this. And Steve McQueen was looking for a story that could display the life of somebody young and black who has uh, lived experiences of living in institutions and so forth. And so he felt my story was the perfect fit for that. So um, yes, coming to a, a TV screen near you very soon.
1: What was it like the, telling a story that is obviously so close to you and you know so well, but telling making that into a kind of not a fiction, but you know a, a story to share rather than when it is your life?
2: It was quite surreal. I was invited to um, write the um, the script myself, but I felt that would be too much for me, um, especially because there are some you know harsh memories, some disturbing memories of me being a kid basically, being um, physically uh, attacked and abused and so forth. And so when you write a script, you have to revisit scenes and so on. And I really wasn't, um, I don't think, uh, I, I didn't want to do that. You know, we uh, lived those scenes in my head all the time. And so uh, a fellow writer, part of the writing team, Alistair Siddons, a great writer, he, um, he took that on, and Steve took that on as well. And uh, obviously I was a consultant, uh, you know, i led them down the story of my of my journey and um, in, in fact one day i even had the um my social worker reports my file and we poured over them and they decided what bits of the file they should put on the screen and I was invited um, onto the set on many occasions. I met the um, the actor who played me, fantastic young guy called Shay Cole. He's going to be a big star. In fact, uh, I think just this morning he was announced in Screen Daily as one of the upcoming young stars in film. So incredible! He's a, he's an incredible talent. He came straight from drama school. He had never been in anything before, so it's a it's a wonderful opportunity for him and so many of the other young actors also. So I feel that my story has given life to a number of careers and I could I dine out on that for a very long time. I feel very proud.
1: I wanted to ask you about the book that you're, you've got in front of you or ahead of you that you're really excited about getting to next.
2: I've got a pile to be read, so um, I cannot say which one I'm going to opt for. I'll probably, it'll probably be Patrice, Eight Pieces of Silver. I, I mean, I've, I've been hearing some incredible things about that book, and she's a big friend of mine. And so I'm sure that'll be my next my next book. And it seems very exciting, doesn't it? I mean, she's, um, I think there's a character who goes missing, and the younger sister tries to track her down. So I'm very, and Patrice always produces incredible work. So I'm a big fan of hers. So I can, even before reading, I can recommend that to your listeners.
1: Huge thanks to Alex. Kane Warriors is out now and it is a painful and powerful read. It's published for a young adult audience, but I truly think any reader would be moved by it and transported by it. And we're all going to learn a lot from it as well. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I have been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by ACAST. You can follow us on social media at ybooked. And please, if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you left us a five-star review. It's the best way to help other people find the podcast and get the word out. You can find a list of all the books Alex mentioned at acast.com slash booked. I leave you with this from Maya Angelou. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. See you next time.